0: Chapter 6 poo We Hardly Knew Ya Sometimes when I would pitch the idea for Tattoo the Earth, I would tell people that my vision of it was so real that I could close my eyes, stand in it, and describe it in detail. I could see it clearly right from the first moment I had the idea. All the sights, sounds, and smells of it all the way down in my bones. Now I was actually standing smack in the middle of our inaugural show, and while it looked, sounded and smelled like i'd imagined it felt nothing like i thought it would however it went and there were no guarantees we would get through it in one piece financially or physically i did feel a sublime sense of accomplishment i had gone from being one of a million bullshitters hustling some fantastical idea to someone who had seen it through and made it happen Sixteen thousand people bought a ticket to see our first show i was looking at them They were bumping up against me as I wandered about. Under a blistering sunny sky in the middle of a horse track in Oregon, I was standing in the middle of Tattooed the Earth. But other than this sense of accomplishment, a feeling that I knew from experience was fleeting. I felt nothing but exhaustion and resentment. We were dinged and edgy, hemorrhaging money, with the future of the things we'd built in constant doubt. Everything had been a struggle, and it never felt like we were actually there. Even then, at our first date, I was still expecting something catastrophic to derail us. I tried to clear my mind of what had been lost getting there and all the minefields we still had to navigate. Nevertheless, I tried to enjoy the moment. Everywhere I turned, though, there were constant reminders of how fucked up everything had gotten, starting with the main stage. Booth had taken the logo that I'd drawn in my basement and designed gothic heavy metal version with red swatches and sharp edges to hang over the stage. I'd approved the designs when he showed them to me, and I thought it was cool that we'd have this imposing logo dominate the stage. But Booth got the measurements wrong, and what was supposed to tower over the stage actually looked like a postage stamp at the top of a legal-sized envelope. You could barely see it from the back of the field. Booth also messed up the two giant scrims with Maori heads that covered the speaker side fills. The design, which again made sense on paper, was actually fine grey print on a black background and you could barely see it. There were a few times during the day when the sun hit it just right that you could sort of see it, but mostly it looked like two black scrims with illegible faint grey sketching on them. I forgave Booth for all of it. I'd made plenty of mistakes that had cost us in the lead up but that was the price of creating something new. You had to be willing to risk big and screw up and accept the mistake in order to keep the thing moving. I let it all go as best as I could, but Booth couldn't get over it and he couldn't stop beating himself up and that was pissing me off. One thing Booth had gotten right were the tents for the festival village. He'd taken the 20 army tents we bought, done his magic and made them look like they'd survived the apocalypse. And this time he also managed to incorporate the flame retardant. In addition to the tattoo artists who were traveling with us, the tent village was inhabited by local guest tattoo artists, piercers, henna artists, body painters, record companies and sponsors and assorted clothing and swag vendors. It looked great when it was all set up and it was a magic moment when I wound my way through the tents and saw all the kids milling around and heard the sound of the tattoo machines buzzing. The village, actually the whole setup in Portland, was ideal. Down the field from the main stage was a smaller second stage, and the village sat between them. Our tour manager, Ronnie Hausfeld, a.k.a. Mr. Sunshine, was drowning just handling the music piece of the show. And since my role on the tour was undefined, I planned to introduce some bands, do interviews, and play good or bad cop when needed. I volunteered to manage the vendors on the road. Before the tour, we arranged for a group of vendors to travel with us, but some others showed up unexpectedly and joined us for the duration. With all the deals we'd struck with various vendors and new vendors showing up at each show, it was a real trick collecting the money every night. You've got some carny in you, Scott, Zukowski said that first night when I showed him the wad of cash I'd collected. The village was one of the few things that was working, though not without complications. I'd hired a body painter out of Pa Rump, Nevada, named Precious Slut. Slut ran a tattoo and body painting shop and had done body painting on previous tours. He had a strong portfolio and references. I met Slut for the first time before we opened the doors, and he seemed competent and enthusiastic. His tent looked professional, and he was busy as soon as we let people onto the grounds. But as the venue was filling up, I got a call over the radio to come to Slut's tent. There was a huge crowd in front as well as a couple of cops. The cop in charge told me to go into the tent and that we would talk after I saw what was happening in there. In the tent, I found six women, most of them underage in various stages of undress, getting their bodies painted. I think I laughed at first and then felt like I was going to pass out. Slut was nowhere to be found, so I went over to the cops to gauge the depth of the shit we were in. Seems that Slut had auctioned the painting of the young woman to the highest bidder, and after Slut painted them, he would parade them on the table topless or naked while guys crowded around to give them tips. Slut had, in other words, created a little strip club, and the Portland police were having none of it. The age of the girls didn't seem to bother the cops, but the stripping and guys making contact with the girls had to cease. They said they'd stop the whole thing, but didn't want to start a riot. Are you doing this just tonight or are you going on tour with this? One of the cops asked after I thanked him for being so cool. I told them the cities we were playing and they chuckled and shook their heads as they wished me luck. Zukowski thought it was hilarious. We were both open-eyed about how unruly the tour was likely to get, but for this first night we put that behind us and tried to stay focused on just getting through Portland. He also had some good practical advice, like that he and I should try to always be at different ends of the field. That way, if I didn't want to deal with someone, I could tell them they'd have to see Zukowski, and he could refer someone he didn't want to deal with to me, and that way we could ping-pong people all night. Zukowski also said that we finally had the upper hand with the bands now that we were on the road, and that proved true at the first show. We'd been at the mercy of agents and managers, but now it was a new ball game. Steve Richards showed up, and it was heartbreaking to see him in a wheelchair, suffering from what seemed like stroke symptoms, but he was still Steve inside. The band surrounded him, and their affection for him was palpable. I hugged and kissed him, and Clown, and thanked him for sticking with us. The main stage bands were Slipknot, Slayer, Sepultura, Seven Dust, and Head P.E., with Stone Temple Pilots as the headliner for that first show only. The Portland show was presented by the local rock station, and they had booked Stone Temple Pilots to headline their festival, and bought our show to go with it, which saved them having to book all the bands themselves. We'd booked a dozen bands for the second stage to travel with us, All up-and-coming new bands like Cold, Hatebreed, Downset, Full Devil Jacket, and Systematic, and it would prove to be a constant challenge to get every band on and off before curfew. Sometimes the bands on the main and second stage would overlap, and though it sucked, it was usually unavoidable because everyone had to play. We were paying top dollar for the main stage bands, but almost all of the bands on the second stage had their slots paid for by their record company. So the second stage was key for us financially. We'd booked Nashville Pussy to headline the second stage. They were the only band we were paying, and they were the only band giving us grief about the scheduling. That first night, there was no way to schedule their set without it overlapping with Slayers, and their manager was telling us they wouldn't play if we didn't fix it. We told them to deal with it for the night, and that we'd fix it on the remaining dates. But it quickly became contentious, and I could see Zukoski starting to lose patience. I think what we have devolved into here is a circular discussion, the manager said to us condescendingly, like a haughty professor, and I see no way to resolve this for my band. Listen, I don't know about circular discussions, Zukoski began measuredly, though I could see him steaming. But I have a direction we can go in, and that direction is right out the door. Your band is fired. No circles, no discussions, you're done. Go tell your band. The manager was stunned as Zukoski and I walked away, and really, he deserved it. We didn't need to take that shit anymore, at least from the only second stage band we were actually paying. In Zukoski's mind, he just saved us money and made the second stage easier to schedule. The manager tried to smooth it over, but we told him to piss off. Finally, Nashville Pussy's guitarist, Ryder Size, came to talk to me. I'd met Ryder briefly in Europe the previous year when I was traveling with Cypress Hill, and hers was one of the bands I wanted. I thought it was Kismet when they were offered to us for the tour. Ryder was in her early 30s, one of the leading female guitarists in rock, and along with her bass player, Tracy Almazan, one of only two female musicians on the tour. Nashville Pussy were a sleazy hard rock band founded by Ryder and her husband, Blaine Cartwright, and their insane 1998 debut album, Let Them Eat Pussy, was nominated for a Grammy. Her stage persona was all about sex, drugs, and wild antics, but sitting across from her backstage, I could see that she was prettier than she looked on stage and more vulnerable. After I vented and suggested that their manager needed a blanket party, a blanket put over his head while he's pummeled with a mic stand, Ryder explained that she just fired him. She was upset and said that they hadn't even known he was going to show up that night and had no idea he was causing such a problem. We groused about managers, agents, and record labels for a while. She told me that Nashville Pussy had almost signed to Sharon Osbourne's record label, and when they met and she told Sharon that Nashville Pussy was doing our tour, Sharon said that she was going to hire a plane to fly over our shows pulling a banner saying, Fuck Tattoo the Earth. I liked Ryder and her band and we decided to let them stay. I introduced the band on the main stage in Portland and I did some MCing on both stages for the remainder of the tour. I got some advice before I did it for the first time. Scream, curse and reference the upcoming bands as much as possible. How are you motherfuckers doing? I would scream at the fans. Are you getting ready for Sepultura? Are you ready for Slayer? Are you ready for Slipknot? Well, you better fucking be ready. Now put your hands together for Seven Dust. The band that opened the main stage was famous, Lauren Boquette's new band. As our head of guerrilla marketing, Lauren had been instrumental in getting the tour launched, and part of his payoff was having the opening slot on the main stage. Kirby was livid that I'd given the slot to an unknown band without a record deal, but Lauren earned it. I was emotional when I stood in front of the crowd and introduced Famous, and then thanked Lauren. The good feeling was lessened slightly when I realized Lauren's band kind of sucked, but he'd earned the spot, and his band was the least of my problems. We still weren't 100% sure what bands were going to show up for that first show, and we still hadn't finalized the last dates of the tour. Coal Chamber had dropped off a week before we started, using the excuse that they needed to get into the studio, and that was a problem. They had been a key band in our package and a good draw, and we'd have to refund money to the promoters in each place we played because of them. Spineshank showed up unexpectedly to play the second stage, and they were with us for some of the shows. We thought Puya, a progressive metal band from Puerto Rico with a breakthrough album, was going to show up in Portland to play the main stage, but they didn't. Puya, we hardly knew ya, Zukowski said when he found out they were a no show. Someone who did show up in Portland was our tour photographer, Fran Strine. In the lead up to the tour, Fran had been trying to get in touch with me by email to see if we needed a photographer, but I hadn't responded. I was buried mainly answering fans who were ticked off that the dates hadn't been announced yet, and then were angry for all the markets we were missing when dates were announced. Some lambasted us for being another big corporate behemoth who could care less about the fans when it was just me on my computer at 3 in the morning in my underwear getting stoned answering emails and dancing for my life. I finally gave Fran my address and he sent me a nice leather portfolio with his work. His photography looked fine to me, but I was more impressed that the guy had spent so much on a portfolio, he knew he probably wouldn't get back. I gave him a call and listened to his pitch. I need to be on this tour, he told me with a southern drawl. And I know you don't know me, but I'm tight with the guys from Seven Dust and I've done tons of live shoots, but never a tour, and as soon as I heard about this tattoo the earth, I knew I had to be on it. You don't have to pay me, all I need is a spot on a bus. You don't even have to feed me. In other times, I would have taken pause at Fran's direct approach mixed with desperation, but this was Tattoo the Earth, and the dude was telling me he needed to be there, and that that was his dream. And I did need a photographer, and he'd sent a leather book. Listen, Fran, I told him, if you can get to Portland by July 18th, I will put you on a bus, feed you, and give you access to everything. That is assuming you can get to Portland by Saturday, and we don't find out you're an asshole when you get here. Fran left his job working for a company that made frozen ice cream machines and bought a one-way Greyhound bus ticket from Atlanta to Portland. It took four days and he got to Portland just in time to join us. I had a good feeling about him immediately, put him on a crew bus, and gave him an all-access backstage pass, the holy grail of concert passes. I tried to listen to as many of the bands as possible that first night, but most of it wasn't my thing. The reality was that I probably wouldn't have attended my own show had someone else put it on. I grew up on the Beatles, the Stones, and the Who, and much of the music on the tour wasn't based in melody. My ears weren't musically wired to get Slayer, but I could appreciate the power and defiance of it, the rock and roll middle finger of it. I may have needed a melody to connect to the music, but I got the dark metal sensibility and knew that if I were 16 I'd be in the mosh pit banging my head. I felt a connection with the kids at our shows, and they responded when I emceed. I was the head counselor at the most fucked up summer camp ever. Sean and I couldn't stop asking each other, Can you believe this? I mean, we couldn't believe it. You did this, bro, he told me. I never had any doubt. We did this, Sean, and I was racked with doubts. Sean had been so instrumental in making it happen and always put the show first. He'd brought in Paul Booth, which took some balls. Booth was an artist of greater stature than he, and most guys would have surrounded themselves with lower-tier guys to protect themselves, but not Sean. Sean and Betsy had grown close, and it felt like everything was jibing, and that I was creating a foundation to do big things. I became overcome with emotion, thinking about the people who'd helped us get there, like Naomi Fabricant. Quit Jack Utsik and came on the tour as our press liaison and tour manager for the tattoo artists. She was in New Jersey doing the advance work for Giant Stadium, but I called a few times to ask, Can you believe this? I never doubted it, she replied. The crowd was going insane by the time Slipknot got ready to take the stage. I could see them as they left their trailer and headed toward me, toward the stage, the future coming closer into focus a high-fived clown and followed the band up to the stage. For an intro, Slipknot had a giant scrim with a pentacle designed that hung in front blocking the stage while the country song Get Behind Me, Satan played. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan and push. I'm real darn mad and that's just too bad. Come on, Satan and push. The song distorted as it went on until it was replaced with rapid drumming and total distortion. It built to a climax until the scrim fell. The crowd exploded, and there was fucking Slipknot. The crowd was on the dirt infield, so there was a dust haze over everything mixed with smoke. During one song, Corey Taylor, Slipknot's frontman, got the entire crowd to kneel down with instructions to jump as high as they could when he gave the cue. When the crowd finally jumped up, it was like an implosion, punctuated by a giant mushroom cloud of dirt from the racetrack. It almost knocked me over, the power of it, and my part in making it happen. I thought of Robert Oppenheimer, and how those guys in Los Alamos probably felt the same way. I got chills and started shaking. I fell to my knees and started sobbing uncontrollably. I stayed on my knees and sobbed, until I felt a hand on my shoulder and looked up to see Zukowski next to me. "'Enjoy this, Scott,' he said, his hands squeezing my shoulder.' It'll never feel this way again.